Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-472 of the Run Run Live podcast. I was struggling this week to put some content together for the show, and I was thinking about taking a couple of weeks off, but, you know, I rallied. And I have more going on than ever, but as you know, it's not about how much you have going on. It's how excited you are about what's going on which dovetails nicely with our guest today, Brock, who is one of those lovable accidental athletes that circle our galaxy of endurance sports. And we talk about all the funny things around triathlon and such. And he's got a book about this, and and you can find the links in the show notes. Brock would be an excellent person to go on a long run with. He's funny. In section one, I'll talk a little bit about how to stay warm in cold weather cold weather running. And in section two, I'll talk about bioluminescent jellyfish. Just kidding. I wanted to see if you were paying attention. I'm going to ponder awareness. Yeah, which is a lot like uh, bioluminescent jellyfish, as it turns out. And why am I so happy this week? Well, I'm having a good week. My running is going well. I signed up for a race, and I'll tell you more about that in the outro. And I got a new job. Yeah, I did. I got promoted. I know, right? I didn't even want a new job, but I got noticed and I got promoted, which is cool. I'm excited about it. You know, the universe provides. And let me tell you a story. Let me tell you my ice skating story from last weekend, not this weekend, because this weekend we're having a blizzard. Last weekend, beautiful skating weather. Here in New England, we got one of those once in a decade conditions for perfect ice skating on the ponds. And this was last weekend, last Saturday, and it was beautiful. It was cold, it was sunny, it was beautiful. Perfect pond skating weather. Now, ice hockey was my sport growing up. That was my sport. I started playing when I was like five years old. I didn't play after getting to high school. I wasn't really good enough to compete at that level. I'm a great skater, but I'm not a fast skater. I mean, I can go forever, but I don't have the eyes or the speed to take it to the next level. So anyways, I always love skating. It's like flying. And I played in pickup leagues all through my 20s. And then I started training for marathons. And I 
didn't really have room for hockey or skating, especially this time of year where it would overlap with my training for Boston, so I'd always be afraid to go out and skate, blah, blah, blah. But last weekend I said, hey, it's a perfect day. I have no reason not to go skate. So I dug out my old hockey skates, my old stick. I got a puck out of the freezer because that's where you keep pucks, in the freezer. Do you want to know why? Because you want them to be cold so they don't stick to the ice. You want them to be slidey and bouncy on the ice. Anyhow, I went down to the pond. And frankly, I was a bit frightened because it has probably been a decade since I went ice skating. And I'm no spring chicken. And with the buggered knee and all, you know, but I was excited too. Kind of felt like a first date. And now these hockey skates of mine. These were a brand of skates called Microns, which were all the rage in the early 90s because they had this one-piece plastic boot, like a ski boot, that was lighter than the traditional two-piece leather skates. And uh, I got the first skate on okay down at the pond, but when I went to put the second one on, it literally exploded in my hands. It fell to little pieces. The plastic had, oh, what's the right word, degraded? rotted, decomposed, lost structural integrity, ceased to be, yep, whatever. So there I am, a sad, skateless person. So I sulked home, and my wife looked at me, and she said, so go buy another pair of skates. Like, I'm an idiot, right? So I called the local sporty goods place, and they had a pair in my size. So I went down there, and I bought them. They were $130, which seemed very reasonable to me. But for some reason, hockey sticks now cost $240, which seems a bit alternate universe to me. But that's okay. I already had a stick. So I went back down to the pond, and I laced them up. And you know what? It's like riding a bike. Once I warmed up, I was skating around like a maniac, stick handling like a like a peewee around the pond. And I even joined some high school kids for a game of pickup hockey, and I was probably out for over two hours Saturday afternoon. And of course, my ankles aren't the strongest and my balance isn't great, but I was skating and it was like flying. And yes, my long run the next day was a bit traumatic. (laughs) And I did pull a muscle in my ass, but it was well worth it. So my friends, I am filled with joy and gratitude for that. And you should look for ways to fill yourselves with joy and gratitude. And we talked about this. A gratitude practice rewires your brain. So instead of looking for everything going wrong, you look for things to go right. You look for things to be grateful about. So here's a pro-gratitude tip for you. You create gratitude triggers in your day. So it can be as simple as putting a sticky note somewhere to remind you to be grateful. Or you can have specific events that are your cue to be grateful. And I decided that my cue to be grateful would be every time Ollie comes into my office to check on me, I'd stop and be grateful for that moment. And so what can you do, right? What Think about it. What can you devise as a gratitude trigger? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Cold weather running. It might be uncomfortable, but hey, it's not going to kill you. And hopefully this will help someone and come into their life at the right time 
to help them understand how to have fun in the cold. Cold is relative, right? Cold for me up here in New England is January and February, this time of year, and it hovers in the mid-teens Fahrenheit and dips into the single digits. It's below zero territory at night, and it seldom goes above freezing. And if it does, it's only for a brief window in the afternoon. And sunshine is in short supply as well, which creates a problem for runners who want to get out in the morning or want to get out in the afternoon. If you want to have sun and a reasonable temperature, you basically get 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Other than that, you got to run in the cold or the dark. And of course, it, there's this stuff called snow and freezing rain and ice and salt on the roads. The trails become almost impossible to run on. So let me say this. Cold is relative. Cold for you may be when it drops into the 40s. It's all relative. By this time of year, I'm acclimated. I can go outside in my sweatshirt. It's fine. Human bodies are amazingly adaptable. The cold isn't going to kill you. It'll cause you to adapt, which is a good thing. To start with, there are really only three things, three rules you need to get right to stay comfortable in the cold. And I'll go through them, and then I'll go through in a little detail. One, keep your head warm. Two, keep your hands warm. Three, keep your throat warm. So number one, keep your head warm. This means having a good warm hat. You can use specially designed cold weather running hats or any winter hat that covers your ears and wicks sweat. You want it to be nice and thick to keep the heat in, and you want to have enough volume so you can cover as much of your head as you have to, right? So your ears aren't sticking out. And remember, if you're running, you're going to sweat. And when you sweat, the hat is going to get wet. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing. The winter hat that you get for running needs to stay warm when it's wet and icy. And this becomes particularly important if you're out on a long run or you're going to stop exercising at some point, like a long Porter John stop or a walk break. That hat needs to still keep your head warm, even if it's wet. And if you're out for a long run in the sub-freezing weather, that sweat that, that wicks out of your head through the hat is going to freeze and you may get icicles. We call them sweatsicles. And again, it won't kill you to have your outside layer frozen. It actually sometimes acts as a little insulator, like an ice helmet. But the bottom line is, the first rule of staying warm outside when you're exercising is to keep your head warm. And the way to do that is with a good hat. The head is where your body sends a large portion of your blood and energy, so you got to keep that warm. So the next rule, rule number two, is keep your hands warm. Get some good winter gloves, or even mittens, or you can layer up gloves and mittens, depending on what you what you need. I find that most of the gloves that you buy that are specifically designed for cold weather running aren't warm enough for my weather. And more than once, I have bought winter running gloves and found that the technical fabric is great for wicking sweat, but does a poor job of keeping your hands warm. The specifically designed winter running stuff tends to be too form-fitting in general, and that's great for racing, but if I'm out on a long training run, I'll gladly sacrifice those aerodynamics for a nice big sweater with puffy sleeves that I can pull my hands into. And this time of year, I'll default to a big pair of winter mittens. No fingers, just the mittens. It makes it hard to hold anything in your hands, but your hands stay warm. So, you know, you just kind of want to overdress on the on the gloves. 
you don't want gloves that are going to retain so much water that they freeze or even get heavy with water. So it's going to suck if you have two blocks of ice at the end of your arms. So you need them to wick. You can also use hand warmers, those chemical hand warmers. They work well enough. Uh, they're not a substitute for good gloves, but they can help. And there, there are also electric hand warmers that you can put in your pockets. They're super warm, but they're a bit clunky, and I'm not sure how well they'd stand up to the toxic runner juices over the long haul. And then the third rule was to keep your neck warm, rule number three, which is probably just an extension of rule number one, but got to keep that neck warm because your neck keeps your head warm, right? All that blood that's going up into your head passes through your neck. You can't leave this territory bare and expect to stay warm. There are a number of clothing strategies to keep the neck warm. Of course, a gaiter is ready-made for keeping your neck warm. That's what it's for. A gaiter is a tube of material that you slip over your head and you wear it around your neck. This covers up that transition point from your core to your throat, to your head. I have both thin technical gaiters that are worn under your sweater or under your jacket, under the collar, and I have a bigger fleece one that you wear as an outer layer. So if you don't have a gaiter, you could also use a scarf. If things get really cold, you can put on your balaclava, which is a combination of the hat and the gaiter in one piece of clothing. Keeps your head really warm. And that's it. Keep your head warm. Keep your hands warm. You will be fine. For extra credit, you might want to consider the rest of your body. Sometimes people, they get cold feet. I do not, but some people do. Running shoes typically don't have a lot of insulation. You can buy toe caps specifically for running shoes that add an outer layer. They like strap on and they keep the wind from blowing through your shoes. Uh, the, the dirt bag type runners, like me, we just use duct tape if it gets super cold. So good winter tights or pants are going to be needed to keep your legs warm. Although I have friends who run in shorts all year long. I, you know, it's just who you are and how you acclimate. And for your top, you want to layer. Typically you want to layer. I usually go with one or two wicking undershirts and then a jacket or a sweater or a vest over that. So the caution is that you can actually be too warm. And if you get too warm, you'll sweat too much and then that will freeze and that can be very uncomfortable. So as you're layering up, try to have stuff you can unzip or vent if you start to get too warm. And one last thing to consider is the time it takes to get into all this stuff. I can't tell you how many hours of my life I have spent wandering around my house looking for a pair of gloves or a hat. Yeah, so it pays to organize this stuff and have it ready to go. And likewise, when you're done, you've got this massive pile of wet stuff. You got to hang that up. You got to hang it up to dry or you got to wash it so it doesn't start to create new life forms, <laughs> which it will if you leave it crumpled in a wet pile on the floor. And I could go on and on about running in the cold, but I'll leave you with this. It's okay to be cold. It may sound awful to you to be out when it's single digits and dark, but it has its own beauty. Sometimes I'll pause and I'll look up at that quiet January sky with all the stars. And, and breathe in the silence of that moment, stripped bare and sleeping in the starkness of this beautiful world. It's stunning. It's a gift. And I'm humbled and grateful for the opportunity to be alone in it.
And now for today's featured interview. All right, Brock, how are we doing this morning? We're doing very, very well. The forest quite chilly up here. Yeah, so if it's zero for me, it must be, I'm talking Fahrenheit, it must be minus seven, minus eight for you. Oh, yeah, and in the, the feels-like monitor, it says it's like minus 30 for us. Yeah. And yeah. I think we intersect with uh, Fahrenheit at minus 40. Give us the 200 words on who you are and what you're doing. Well, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a phys ed teacher, physical education, high school physical education teacher just outside of Montreal. I'm presently off that right now because I'm on injury leave. Um, I'm also an author of a book called My Coworkers Think I'm a Pro, which is mostly a triathlon book because uh, that's the main sport that I do right now. Uh, in fact, the reason that I'm injured is because in September I was at the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in St. George, Utah. And uh, I mean, it's in the middle of the desert and they hadn't had any rain there for since January. And on that day, it was a, a downpour and hail and like golf ball size hail. And I was going down a hill at 75 kilometers an hour. I don't know what that is in miles per hour, it's like 45 or something. I fell <laughs> and I broke uh, my clavicle, couple of ribs and my pelvis in a couple of places. So I haven't run since September 18th. Did, did you post the x-ray with all the screws? Of course I did. Yeah. yeah Nine of course, screws. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> of That's what yeah. you do. Yeah. But before you were a triathlete, you were a, uh, a marathoner. And one of the things people don't know, part of the world where you're from has a really robust marathoning community. Oh, um, absolutely. You know, going, you talk about like uh, Gerard Cote, who won the the Boston Marathon five times. It's part of the culture. So, which always amazes me because the weather isn't always great. <laughs> no, it's not. Running where you are, <laughs> kind of like where I am. And this is when you're spinning up big miles, right? So this is, if you're training for Boston right now would be when you need to get in like a 16 to 17 mile um, training run. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, this is the coldest part of the year. I kind of like it like that. I don't like it cold. Don't get me wrong. I can't stand winter. But uh, long runs in the real cold, it just adds a little extra challenge to it and gives it more, makes it more interesting. So those 30 kilometers don't seem to, to take as long because you're worried about the cold. So you're not worried about so much about being exhausted. It's like, okay, I got to keep warm here. My hands, my tips and my fingers are freezing. I might lose a toe, but I'm not as tired as I would normally be in July. And if I had to choose between the two, brutal, humid heat or, you know, minus 20, I think I'd rather the cold because you can always lose layers. Right. No, I'm with you 100%. I would rather run in the cold than in the heat because, yeah, uh, yeah it, it's logistical. I mean, it's a logistical problem, but you can work around it in the cold, whereas the heat, it's the heat. There's nothing you can do, right? Yeah. And because you have to prepare so much uh, thinking about what to wear and everything, it gets your mind thinking about preparation in general. Whereas in the summer, sometimes you throw your shoes on, put a singlet on and go and think, oh, I forgot the gel. I don't, I don't have any hydration. What am I doing? Whereas yeah. when you think I got, I, you can't step outside when it's minus 30 with the singlet on. So you're constantly thinking about, okay, what am I going to do? There's just a, a bigger preparation right. with Right. And when you combine the distance, right? So if you're going to be out for two and a half hours in this kind of weather, you got to start the, there's some unique um, tactical problems. Like how do you keep your fluids from freezing? 
right? Yeah, exactly. Like if you're carrying a bottle in your hand, it's going to freeze solid in about 20 minutes. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then, then you're stuck. You don't have any fluids. And the other one, uh, so same is true with gels. I remember taking a power bar with me once, um, having it in the outside pocket of my sweater yeah. and then trying to bite it. It was like, <laughs> it was like a piece of iron, right? There's yeah. no way I could get it in my mouth. The other thing is, um, if you like to listen to music and you have a phone or some sort of device, guess what? Those freeze too. Yeah, in a hurry too. Yep. Yeah, so yeah. you got a lot of uh, Boston Marathons under your belt too early on in your life before you started this uh, triathlon ridiculousness, which is a yeah. kind of a normal yeah. arc for athletes, amateur athletes, I find, right? Yeah, particularly runners. I uh, Yeah, I did six, six of them. In fact, it was, as I say in my book, it's it's kind of part of the reason why I became a triathlete in the first place. From my house to Boston, you're looking at five and a half hours in the car. And I've done it so many times and it was it's boring. Like you can only, I could only listen to NPR so many times when, when you're not interested in the topic. So I right, decided. But, but even then you lose radio stations in that stretch. Oh for yeah. Like an hour. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like there like, is no radio station. You probably speak French so you can get the French radio stations. Yeah. But. Yeah. But, uh, but still, but that particular year I went and I got a, a book on CD and the CD that I chose was Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. Yep. And uh, it, I put the CD in the machine halfway through thinking, okay, great. It's time to listen to these wonderful stories along the Appalachian Trail. And uh, they had put the wrong one in, and it was yep. Lance Armstrong's It's Not About the Bike. Yep. Once you can take Lance or leave Lance, I don't really care. But the interesting part was he talked about the bike a lot, even though it's called It's Not About the Bike. And it really interested me. I thought, geez, I want to race my bike so bad. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't think there was races on bikes for adults like me at 40 years old. So get into triathlon. <laughs> that's, the way, that's the way that works. So if I hadn't gone to the Boston Marathon that year, I wouldn't be a triathlete probably. So Yeah. Yeah. I remember I picked that book up in a used bookstore in San Francisco one time on a trip. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, that's a great book. Actually, they're both great books. The The Bryson book, I wasn't super thrilled with because I started reading it saying, hey, you know what? Maybe I want to do the Appalachian Trail. I don't think he was in particularly good shape. Certainly not the guy who was with him wasn't in very good shape. So that kind of makes yeah. it a bit more torturous. I yeah, but those are both good books. I, I would recommend them. I used to do the same thing, except I used to drop um, learn French cassettes so I could pop into Quebec City speaking a little French. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, good idea. Because you get that that five hours with nothing to do. The other thing I used to do is I used to stop in New Hampshire in the Whites, yeah, and do do some trails. You got the run part. You figured out the bike part. What usually sinks runners in the triathlon is the swim part. How did yeah. you figure that out? And uh, I didn't I, get to that part of your book. I bet that's probably a funny part of your book where you're you're yeah. figuring out how to swim. Uh, where I grow up, where I grew up, I live there now where I grew up and there's the Richelieu River, which you might know because you've been up here many times. It's, I could, I could, if you're a golfer at all, I could hit a three iron shot and put the ball in the water from where I am. But I didn't think to swim in that when I was getting into swim training for uh, my first triathlon. The way I trained for my first triathlon was this. When I was growing up, I was a canoeist, so we were in the river all the time, and every kid has swum before, right? So I know how to swim. So I blew that part off, and I went out and bought a wetsuit. That was my swim training for my first triathlon. And I didn't even put it on all the way. I put it up to my waist and figured, oh, yeah, that feels good. 
And then I went to Connecticut for my first uh, New London, I guess it is. New but, London. Yeah. That's where the river is. Yeah. And I did a sprint triathlon. And uh, the swim part, like you said, it almost killed me. I, I had never had a panic attack like that before in my life. And apparently that's normal for first-time triathletes. Like, but I'm not kidding. Like, it was, it's funny. It's really funny, the story to tell now. But at the time, I thought for sure I was going to die. I mean, just it was a sprint triathlon, so the, the swim's only 750 meters. And I remember looking out at the course and thinking, that first buoy is at least, well, six, seven miles away. There's no, there's yeah, no way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got in the water. Yeah. I, I did a warm up, and that's when I noticed, oh, man, this thing is tight. It's constricting. I, I don't like it. I can't feel the water at all because it's hitting the wetsuit. And then, so I got out after the warm up, and I'm standing in line, you know, they're doing the national anthem, and I'm trying to be patriotic, even though I'm Canadian. But in my mind, I'm just thinking, how do, how do I get out of this race? Like, do I start a fight with somebody? Do I just yank on the zipper of my wetsuit so it breaks? I don't know. So I unzipped it just a little bit so that it could breathe a little bit. And the guy behind me noticed that it was unzipped. And he's just trying to be nice. Dude, your, your thing's unzipped. Can I help you out? And I snapped that. And I was like, you touched my wetsuit, you die. It's that simple, buddy. Don't touch the zipper. Anyway, I got through it. And, uh, and now... I mean, now I'm, I'm much more comfortable in the water, though it is definitely my weakest, my weakest. Yeah, yeah same, same thing for me. I was a swimmer growing up, right? Down the pond, swim all day. But there's a difference between swimming and swimming. <laughs> yeah, big right? difference. <laughs> and it probably took me five years to unlearn everything I knew and then relearn how to do it right with the total immersion training. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. And that's tough um, which is. Yeah, which and and to this day I've got it. I you know I jumped in the pool after not swimming for like two years. You know, and it it's there. It's still there, right? That yeah, total like, immersion is so good. Anybody who's done a sprint triathlon knows exactly what you're talking about when you walk up and you see the buoy and you go, <laughs> "There is no way that's 400 yards. That's yeah, exactly. at least a mile, right?" <laughs> oh yeah, and then and then when I did my first like uh, half Ironman. Because I jumped from that right to the half Ironman distance, and it's like you're, you're kidding. Like this is that's a this is not an airport. Like that, that looks like a runway, and like it's ridiculous. There's no way these people know how to measure anything. But then you start swimming, and you know, it took me, I would say, ten or so triathlons though to get over panic at some point in the water. Like it just it would always I would it would be fine. And then you get, you know, a little while out and someone would swim over me, someone who right. knew how to do it. And there's 2,000 of you in the water at the same time. Yep. And that panics you because, like, your goggles are getting ripped off, an elbow in the face, and I'm not comfortable anyway. And even to this day, like the last one I did in Utah, there was a point in the race, I'm all alone, I'm doing well, and the panic just starts to come back. And so what do you – and it's – stop it. It takes yeah. a lot for me to just control it and just – and that's when I do it. You know, you just said concentrate on the total immersion technique. What I did that really helped in the last one, I've, I've only gone, gone up to the Olympic level with this. I just, I don't have enough time in my life for triathlon. You you work into this sort of meditative state, especially if you have the wetsuit on, you have the buoyancy, right? Right, yes. Yeah. You kind of forget you're swimming. And that's, yeah. that's, that's the nirvana. And if you can get clear enough in a triathlon to do that, what happens is people train in the pool. And they're really, they go, okay, I'm pretty good at this. Yeah. Then they get in the water with a thousand people and it's, it's 
it's every man for himself. And they forget all their form and all their training and they just start thrashing around. Yeah, you do all the the, the main thing that's the stupidest thing with swimming and, and a little bit with running, but not as much is they forget technique and they just try to force everything and, and pull harder. And it's not about that. It's all about just be relaxed, relax. Yeah. The more and, relaxed but, you are, the faster you're going to go. Yeah. And with swimming, it's, it's like times 10 because of the resistance level with running, yeah. you can kind of recover, but with swimming, you're working the harder you work, the slower you go. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't <laughs> breathe whenever you want. That's the other right. thing that I, I found out like with the running, you get tired, you just breathe harder. And swimming, you can't take a breath with your head under the water. You can try, yeah. but and it's not going to work. But it's it's good fun, though. And the other thing that I notice, and I, I'll ask you this question, is the cultures around distance running and triathlon are poles apart. Yes. Like, they're different people. Like, the mindset is different. Absolutely. Do you notice that? Absolutely. Running... Uh, when you go to a, it depends what kind of running event because right. it changes. Yeah. Like if you're on an ultra trail, ultra, that it feels like you're at a giant yoga convention. Everybody's very <laughs> cerebral, and you know, it's it's you, you hear dude a lot, right? Um, if it's if it's a, a 10k road race that's local, but there's still a lot of people in it, and you know that there's some fast guys. There's always a couple kids from college in it. And it's like, okay, I'm really going to have to push it here. And they're all business. Triathlon, it's, it's let me tell you about me. Yeah. <laughs> when you, it's like, like dude, I, I don't really care about your train. And they try to, it, it's so intimidating, even though they might not be trying to intimidate you, but they're telling you all their splits and how much training they do after. And it's like, just stop it. You're scaring me because I didn't do a 30 kilometer run yesterday. And you're making me scared because you did. And, but it's, it's more about me than what's going on, like the event. Right. Yeah, it's and it's just, even a, even at like a sprint, right? The, oh yeah, there'll be, this age, there'll be this age grouper guy who shows up, brings his trainer with him. <laughs> yeah, and is sitting there spinning and holding court. Yeah, on his seven thousand dollar bike. It's like, dude, yeah. what you, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and you go to trend like it. At the beginning of a running race, I, I everybody does it. You're kind of checking out. Okay, that guy looks fast. This she's okay. This that guy I can beat for sure. Um, that guy's got boobs, so I'm going to beat him. And you know, it's kind of like that. But in triathlon, everybody's puffing their chest out, and you get into the transition zone. And some people have all this stuff with them, and you're thinking, "What do you need all this stuff for?" Like they bring buckets of gear. Do you need a wetsuit, a bike, and a pair of running shoes? That's it. Like, I don't understand. Like, maybe a helmet, right? What do you got? Like, how long does it take you to prepare? And they they empty their tires of the air and then fill it back up again. And like, there was already air in it. I, I don't I've never understood that. Every everybody's got a pump and transition. I'm thinking, what? And I'm, I worry. You know, it's like, what did I forget? What do I not know that these people know? And then you get into the race and like you finish the whole race and this guy's still coming in on his bike. And, well, did you have an accident? Well, no, no. It's just, okay, well then, what are you wasting all this time and money on for? Well, my coach, yeah. your coach, your coach sucks, dude. Like, come on. Yeah, they have, it's, it's very stuff focused, right? Triathlon, mm-hmm. it's very stuff focused. Yeah. And everybody has to have the stuff. Um, but the then gear, the stuff, no the stuff owns them. Right? Oh, because sure. if they 
oh, I got unsalted gel instead of salted gel. My race is screwed, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even though I've been training well for 20 weeks, I'm, it's all gone to hell now, right? And it's never so. a gel or a bike or a pair of shoes. It's the brand. It's like, yeah, you know, I went through two goos. Oh, whatever. And, you know, and, and well, my, my Cannondale XG20, shut up. Like, well, just ride your bike. <laughs> no, I always got a kick out of that because I, I have an old steel Fuji that yeah. I bought in like 1990-something for 800 bucks. And, uh, and I keep Frankensteining it back together. And yeah. I, I always get a kick out of pets and those guys on the $8,000 bikes. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd like to have one. I mean, and I shouldn't talk. I have, I have several bikes. Um, they're all secondhand, though, because like, I'm a teacher. So like, I'm, not, I'm not going out and buying a seven, eight, $9,000 bike. But I do have a lot of bikes. I just, it's just, I don't, I don't understand. They also, you know, you'll see a guy and he'll, you see his bike or her bike. And it's worth a million dollars. It's just like the pros have, like exactly with the disc wheel and everything in the back. It's all perfect. And then you see them on the bike and you're thinking, well, look at your position. Like you're, you're concentrating on the wrong stuff. You will never go fast. I don't care if you have a Ferrari under you, if you're sitting upright, you're not going fast. You work on technique before stuff. Yeah. And the other thing I noticed in triathlon is there's a lot of big people, right? You don't, you don't get penalized for being, 20 pounds overweight in triathlon like you would in marathoning. No, yeah. I mean, mind you, yeah, those guys, those really big, big guys and women uh, tend, you know, they're not, they're in it for the event and that's great. Um, but they're not, they're not looking to get on the podium or anything. Yeah, but they're, 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 they're serious. They're putting a lot of time into it. They're yeah. serious. And typically you're going to, and they're great swimmers, right? Yeah. Really great swimmers reasonable bikers but then when you hit the run they everybody falls apart when you hit the run completely um, yeah. yeah and and you think to yourself okay so two months of decent nutrition and you could take yeah you know 30 minutes off your <laughs> marathon you know so. absolutely it's like a, it's not a swim bike walk it's a swim yeah. bike run and like you we were just saying before they'll worry about uh you know time and transition or saving yeah 30 seconds on the swim, yeah. I swim three times more a week, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll save 30. Yeah. But you could, like you said, you could literally in a, in an Ironman, you could drop 30 minutes in the run by, yeah. you know, getting in shape, you're getting, losing some timber. Right. A, but it's, but, but you'd rather get that $3,000 teardrop shape helmet that takes 1% exactly. off. Exactly. Right? And they'll talk about that 1%. I just yeah. say uh, that saves 3%. Okay whatever. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. But the one thing I did learn from triathlon was, um, uh, running form when you're exhausted, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't, you know, as a runner, you can sometimes bully your way through races. If you're, if you're strong enough, well-trained enough, mm -hmm. but in a triathlon, when you get to that run, you got to have form because yeah. you don't have the energy to bully your way through it typically. No, there's nothing left but form, yeah, which is a great mantra to, to get you through it. Like I was saying before, just concentrate on one thing at a time. And when you've nailed that part, that, you know, that'll get you through one stitch. And then, and then okay, now, now how are my shoulders? Are they back? Or what, am I sitting in a bucket here? Or what am I doing? You've got to make sure the form is right. Am I on my, the front of my foot? Whatever. 
but to concentrate and, and the cadence, on four. They have really sharp cadence in yeah. the, the it, triathlon. It, yeah, because they do a lot on the bike as well compared to a, a cyclist. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it always pisses me off to get passed by a triathlete in uh, in a marathon. And you can always tell who they are because they're wearing the kit. Right? Yeah, they're wearing a race belt. And they're, you know, instead of just pinning the number on. You know, they get the whole, the whole kit, yeah. you know, the, the stuff on it. Like, okay, <laughs> yeah. you're not swimming today. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what else is, uh, what else is, uh, is fun and funny from your experience here. What's the, like the number one, two, three stories that you tell? <laughs> uh, well, usually there's the swimming story that I already told you. Uh, and now I have that new one from Utah where I fell off my bike, um, which was actually kind of a cool story because when I fell, I, I knew something was wrong right away. Cause I, I heard like a branch snap next to my ear. Uh. So, so it was like, okay, that can't be good. But it was, it was on the right at the bottom of a hill. So there's lots of, you know, bikes still coming. And these two teenagers who were volunteers for Ironman came out to drag me off, off the course. And they didn't let me clip out of my bike first. So they're, they're, and they didn't get the whole clip into a bike thing. They're not, they're not cyclists. So they're dragging me and the bike is dragging along. And I'm like, just let me clip out first. What do you mean clip out? Anyway, so I clipped out. And then the, one of the teenagers looks at my, my collarbone because the bone was like poking through the my uniform thing and he's just lost it dude your bone's sticking out like, thank <laughs> you thanks a lot yeah whatever but the the help that i got from from people in general with that was pretty cool i had a guy i went in the ambulance to the uh, to the emergency in utah and i went through the x-rays and and the doctor said okay we'll line you up for surgery this afternoon and I just time out at him just a second. I said, well, uh, I have a flight tomorrow to go back to Montreal from Vegas. And how much does it cost for a collarbone operation here in the States? And he said, well, I don't know. Don't you have insurance? I said, well, yes and no. Where I come from, you just go to the hospital and they, they fix you and you don't get a bill. It's just like we pay taxes and that's how it works. So no, I don't have like private insurance how much does it cost? I said, well, I don't know. Let me go check. And he went and checked and it's $35,000 in case you're wondering. Yeah. And I just said, well, can I get home without having the operation? And he said, yeah, you don't have to have the operation at all. You'll just never be able to lift your left arm again. They said, yeah, yeah, you can make it home. Now the accident was painful, but the trip home, because I had to drive from St. George, Utah to Vegas by myself. First of all, I had to pack my bike up which took me six hours with one hand and my pelvis was broken. So I can't even walk. And I'm driving myself back to Vegas. And then I got to get on a flight from Vegas to Toronto and then Toronto to Montreal. So you're looking at 12 hours and they gave me the middle seat in the plane. <laughs> that was so much more painful than the accident. So that's my new story to tell pretty much. <laughs> the things we do. All right. So I'll let you get, get back to your life. Um, What's, uh, how do people uh, find you and your, and your stuff? Uh, I'm on Instagram under gibbs.brock and I have a blog called the hack triathlon blog.ca. And my book is called my coworkers think I'm a pro available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere where you would buy a book. Um, cool. you can get it there. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been fun. Thank you. It has been nice fun. to meet you.
Nice to meet you. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Okay, so this is one of those weird meditation type essays that I write every once in a while because I'm reading the uh, untethered soul a little bit in the morning. And I'm calling this one the (laughs) how-to. In most of the things we've talked about in the last dozen years that you and I have been having this conversation, I have talked about how moving out of the unconscious mind and into the conscious mind, right, out of the animal brain into the big brain, that can change how you feel about things and mitigate how they affect you. And the advice is always something like, hey, look at this irrational fear your subconscious is generating for you based on some strange wiring in your physiology or some pre-built cultural assumptions you have. And hey, you know, you know what? Once you start looking at it with your big brain, you'll realize it's dumb. And once you get that realization, you get your power back and you can decide how to act or react. And by the way, those are two massive sentences right there coming in like 50, 70 words. That's a hell of a way to start an essay. Someone called the Writer's Guild. On the whole, this is good advice. This bringing it up into the big brain. You get back in the driver's seat of your emotions. But it misses a layer. So are you ready? Are you ready to turn professional with this? It misses the why this works part of the practice. And it misses the taking the next step part as well. What's happening when you stop to look at an emotion from the big brain perspective? What's happening there? You're moving into the role of the observer. And you are, if you do it right, transcending. I know, right? So not to bury the headline, but that's the final step. To move through the cognitive understanding of a thing and into the true transcendence from it and its construct. The first step is recognizing and understanding, but that's only partly about recognizing and understanding. The mastery is then to move into awareness and pass through that awareness into the true you that exists outside or above all of this day-to-day stuff. And the super mastery is then to take this awareness of the true you who is unaffected by any of this real-world life stuff and move with it back into your day-to-day living. So what do they mean by transcending? Transcending is simply isolating the observer, the who that is observing that pain or that emotion, and then disconnecting that observer from the physical and emotional. And the way it is described is to pass through into the vast empty expanse of space inside. Back behind this awareness is the whole universe. And once you transcend the cage of whatever it is, physical, emotional, cultural, the canvas then is blank. It's yours to do with as you please. So going back to the starting point, this method of moving things into the big brain is not wrong, but it's incomplete. It's a doorway. So what stops us from opening the door and going beyond that is our desire to control. We are, we are trying to understand. We're moving it into the big brain to understand it so we can control it. 
control of our emotions, control of our achievement, and ultimately control of our lives. But it's a catch-22 because there is no control. When you strive for control, you drop, you pull yourself back into the mealy melee of battling with everything. But if you keep going through awareness to transcending, then you don't need that control. And that's okay. There's no control. Because once you come to awareness, it opens you up to that vast empty space of potential inside. It frees you to accept the gifts of the universe. And it gives you a choice. Choice of how you want to live. Choice of whether whether to be happy or grateful or loving. And paradoxically, once you give up control, you're no longer controlled. And this is common across religious beliefs, letting God take the wheel, so to speak. You don't have to put a face on it. And I'll stop there to let you think about this. And why am I thinking about it? Well, partly because I'm still reading The Untethered Soul, like I said, but also partly because I'm always working on my practice and I'm always working on myself. And I find these conversations helpful. And I find that they help adjust my attitude as I move through challenging opportunities in my world as well so thank you for that okay now we're going to move you towards the exit please okay my friends we have swim bike run to the end of episode 4-472 of the run run live podcast and it has been hilarious yes my training has been going well i knocked out a 15 mile run last week even after skating (laughs) and pull out a muscle in my ass uh, using the run-walk method, and I'm feeling strong, even though my mileage and my intensity is relatively low. My knee is hanging in there, and it's it's not getting worse. Uh, since we seem to be getting back on plan, I figured I should sign up for a race, a target race. Give me something to aim for. So I did. I signed up for the Flying Pig Marathon in May. My A goal is to get to the starting line. My other A goal would be to run a 4.15-ish, which sounds pretty slow, but remember where I'm coming from. It looks like I can hit that pace with a 90-second run and a 30-second walk cadence. How about that? And this whole run-walk thing is an interesting experiment. A lot of times, I just end up running these run segments like intervals, just blasting out the run parts and then recovering in the walks which is good training for speed, but doesn't build much endurance because your heart rate is too high. So I'm still figuring out the pacing. What I found is that if I run a 60-30 cadence, I can keep my heart rate in zone two on average, uh, but it goes up into like high zone two, zone three, and then comes back down into zone one when you do the run walk. So it averages out to a zone two. But with the 90-30 my cadence or my uh, heart rate goes a lot higher and it doesn't come down as much. So we'll keep playing with it until the knee is healed. And I'll just say, you know, I'm grateful to be running and I'll take what, what I get. I'm taking what, what it gives me. Yeah. So anyhow, I always wanted to run the Flying Pig in Cincinnati. It's one of these old classic marathons, but it always conflicted with Boston and now it doesn't. I'm guessing Cincinnati is named after the Roman statesman Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus was a Roman consul in the mid-400s BC, back before Rome was the big empire. This is just the beginning of Rome, and he's often held up as a paragon of virtue, an example for statesmen to follow. And the story is, 
that he was working on his farm when Rome was facing a war, and the citizens called on him and made him dictator, meaning that they gave him absolute power to go execute the war, which he did. And then when he won the war, he gave the power up, and he returned to his farm. And that's the virtuous part. So yeah, Cincinnati. If you want to join me, I'd love the company. Ollie Wally, the killer collie, is doing well. We had several disagreements this week, but I didn't lose any blood. One was around whether or not the wood that I bring in for the fire is a toy to be played with. We disagreed about that. Another was around who gets possession of dropped food. We disagreed on that. And another on who gets to sleep with my wife. We disagreed on that. I kind of feel like I need one of those boards that they have in the factories where it says two days without an incident or an accident. And mine would say something like two days without a biting incident. (laughs) You know, you know, I like science fiction, right? And I watch a lot of science fiction movies and shows and I read a lot of books. But watching the movies and the shows you notice that some of these shows and movies have ridiculous premises and cheesy special effects. But somehow, sometimes, just somehow, they make it work. And it's believable. Why? Why? Well, it's the actor's ability to sell it. And it's their ability to forget that they're in some ridiculous rubber outfit. It's their ability to believe what they're doing. And when they believe in it, They make that work. And life is like that, right? It's all ridiculous. We're all wearing rubber suits. But by believing in it, we make it work. So that's all you have to do. Believe. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.